Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I put up some uh, really, I you know, not really, but I thought some pretty good content this week, uh, this last Thursday about emotion and critical thinking, and I would encourage folks to check that out, as well as the podcast that just went up yesterday with uh, Cole Imperi. <laughs> she is a very interesting person, um, and we talk about death and dying and, and thanatology and all kinds of interesting things. And something that I'd like to just sort of, uh, you know, put out there for, for folks because, you know, it's consistently um, the, the, the number of views, number of people that I get watching my non-directly Scientology-related content is, is always less than, you know, when I'm talking about Scientology. And I do get it in terms of why a lot of people have subscribed to my channel and what it is that you're, that you're interested in. But I want to point out that um, the, the other content that I put out is almost always related back to Scientology in some fashion or another, or has to do directly, not indirectly, with my recovery from or learning about uh, how the, the machinations and mechanisms of Scientology work. So even if my videos don't have the word Scientology in the title, I do want to encourage you guys to check out that other content that I put up because I think it is related and all has to do with the purpose, the overall purpose and, and original foundation of my channel, which was to put content out here that would show, you know, my journey, my progress, my learning path, my education, uh, coming out of a destructive cult like Scientology and into the real world and learning about how things are and sort of acclimating and normalizing my life after hitting the reset button back in 2013. So anyway, just wanted to kind of put that out there because I would really encourage you guys to check out all of my content because um, I think it's pretty good stuff. All right, that being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. We have some pretty interesting ones this week. Here we go. Jim Jim. In about 1984, I was wandering around Vancouver with a high school friend and we came across the free personality test at the local Scientology building. We both went in and took the test. Naturally, I had lots of issues and was signed up on the spot for a self-help course. Interestingly, my friend, who was always an oddball in our group of small-town high school friends, was told he tested high-functioning and never heard from the Scientologists again. Is it possible that that Oxford capacity test can weed out the oddballs or is it that he somehow failed the interview during the test? If so, how? Okay, well, I'm not sure exactly what happened because this is a pretty broad setup here in terms of he went in, took the test, and they didn't try to sell him things, or at least he didn't, he didn't say that they did. Um, I can think of a few reasons, so I'll talk about this in general terms um, and see you know, if any of this matches up, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. The free personality test that Scientology offers has one and only one purpose, and that is to get the person who took the test to tell the test evaluator their ruin. In other words, the thing that's ruining their life, the thing that 
they want to change or improve because they feel that it is a very non-optimum and awful or horrible or, or you know something they want to change about themselves whether it is how they relate to others how they relate to themselves maybe they're introverted whatever their ruin is that's the purpose of that test a test evaluator is somebody who will sit down and go through as you know from your own experience but just for everybody else um, all of the the various traits the character traits that are laid out on the personality test and I've done a whole video about this and I will um, put a link to that in terms of why the, the, what the personality test really is all about, how it was created, and, and what the pseudoscience is behind it. And uh, if you haven't seen that video, you might find it interesting. So check out the link below. Um, so now, odds are that for some reason, maybe they didn't get a ruin on your friend, right? And or they got something, but something else came up during the course of the interview that turns Scientology off to the guy. And there are a few things that'll do that. Uh, one of them could be that the person had some kind of psychiatric drug or uh, treatment history of some kind, which always Scientologists are like, oh, well, sorry, can't really do a whole lot with that. I mean, they can have a guy sign up for classes and do classes, so it probably wasn't that. But that is one thing that will turn people off from Scientology is, is right from the get-go, if you walk in and say, you know, I've had electric shock therapy, I've been institutionalized, I'm currently on psychotropic medications, you know, something like that, they'll show you the door. And back in 1984, they definitely would have done that. Nowadays, they've, they've, the restrictions and, and regulations on that are looser because they had to get rid of an awful lot of people uh, because of psychiatric uh, institutionalization history or drug history. So that could be a factor. Another one could be that simply that your friend was broke no money, no Scientology. Bye-bye. See ya. You know, because that's what they are all about is getting money from people. And if your friend said, yeah, no, I'm not interested in buying your book and I'm not, you know, I don't have money for classes. I don't have 50 bucks to pay you. Well, okay. Out he goes, right? And uh, another, um, although they would probably still want to pursue that guy in terms of writing him letters or something like that, but if he didn't buy anything, then Scientology wouldn't necessarily keep his address and phone number because the central files in a Scientology organization are kept according to people who have bought something. They have records of who's done personality tests, but those generally get uh, round filed after about three months or something, right? Whereas when somebody's purchased something from the church, they'll never give up your name. Um, Another reason might be that he was just an ass during the course of the test evaluation. If you're snarky with them or snide or, you know, come off like you're a know-it-all or kind of a, like you mentioned, your friend's a bit of an oddball, they might have thought he was crazy. And, uh, you know, and Scientologists have a pretty... Um, unwarranted idea of, of their own ability when it comes to spotting crazy people. But, um, but they do. They do, you know, if, they, if there's somebody who's talking in an odd fashion, making weird jokes, being non sequitur, um, you know, somehow not able to, you know, form complete sentences or something. I have no idea what you, why you said your friend was an oddball. I'm just throwing things out here. But um, but they'll generally tend to shy away from people like that because, and in their mind, in the, in the mind of Scientologists, 
Um, this is easily justified because Scientology exists to make the able more able. So they want people to come in who are already can, you know, string, put together a good sentence and talk coherently and, and who can think, you know, uh, rationally. And of course, that means that they can think with, you know, how great L. Ron Hubbard is, but you get my point. So those kinds of things might be factors as to why they didn't want to pursue your friend. You signed up for a class, so they made a file on you, so they had your number, they had your address, and they were going to keep pursuing you, especially because you signed up and then got up and, and took off one day. You mentioned this not in the, uh, I edited your question to take out some of the other things that you had said, but you'd mentioned this in the original text of your question, right, that you had signed up and then taken off. So they were going to be all kinds of interested in getting you back, whereas your friend eh, came in, did a personality test, took off whatever, they, they, they can blow him off uh, a lot more easily than they would you. So that's basically the deal with that. Jake, in reading about the Dalai Lama, before he dies, he usually gives his Buddhist monks an idea of where and when he will incarnate so they can look for him. Then they have specific but simple tests they use to ensure the young child is in fact the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. Afterwards, and with parental agreement, the monks take and raise the child as the young Dalai Lama. My understanding is that within Scientology, people believe Hubbard will return. How would they know if he did? I mean, if a young man or woman showed up one day at Big Blue and said they were LRH, how would they know? In all of his writing, did LRH give his Scientology monks an idea of when and where he would incarnate, much like the Dalai Lama? No, not even close. Uh, actually, the expectation within the world of Scientology is that Hubbard's not really coming back, at least not anytime soon. There were no writings or indication uh, in Hubbard's lectures that he was going to be coming back around. There's no tests, there's no setup, there's no password, there's no sign or secret symbol he's supposed to make when he comes back to confirm that it's L. Ron Hubbard. Because in all the writing and all the lectures I ever saw on the topic, Hubbard actually said that he wasn't coming back straight away. There were two places where this is uh, that, that come to mind right away. One of them, uh, the first one in terms of date chronology was 1980. There was this uh, bulletin that Hubbard wrote for the uh, OT8 level, which is contested as to whether it was really Hubbard or not, but I, I definitely believe that it was. Excuse me, and he said in this bulletin, this is the bulletin on OT8 where he talks about Jesus being a lover of young men and or young boys and where he says he's Lucifer and you know the light bringer and this, this whole rundown. I think I've talked about this before. Um, so check my earlier Q&As for anything on that. But in terms of Hubbard said specifically in that bulletin that he was going to um, come back around in his next life as a politician not as a religious leader, and he wouldn't be, therefore, connected up with or looking into the church or trying to run the church or getting involved in church activities. And he didn't even say it would be a politician on this planet. So, you know, take whatever you want out of that. But that's what his words were, is he was going to come back as a politician, not a religious leader. However, this is kind of contradicted by another reference, another issue Hubbard wrote in 1983 about the birthday game. And uh, it's called LRHED, L. Ron Hubbard Executive Directive uh, 339R uh, for revised. It was revised, but it's number 339. This 
uh, executive directive is where Hubbard talks about and gives advice for the birthday game. Another subject that I've talked about already on this channel, but it's basically a production game that the organizations play against each other where they try to get bigger than other organizations. They try to show, uh, you know, relative expansion uh, more than other organizations have expanded. And that's the birthday game. And you're supposed to, that's a point system and you win. And every year they award, you know, which, whichever org grew more uh, relative to its, you know, size. So that's the birthday game. Hubbard wrote this issue where he gave all this advice about playing the birthday game. And in that, he said that if you keep playing this game and keep expanding, the, the orgs are supposed to be these little islands of sanity that are supposed to grow into, you know, oceans and take over their area. And eventually the orgs will meet, you know, as their, as their areas grow. And so they'll have taken over the world. And this is considered target one. Uh, Earth, planet Earth is target one. And Hubbard said in this reference that after we clear this planet, we will go on to target two and clear another one. And so people have gotten from that within the world of Scientology that Hubbard meant that's where he was going when he died, right? Is he was going to go off and do this target two and, and clear some other world. And maybe he would show up there and grow up and become a messiah figure like he did here on Earth and start Scientology there, because according to L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, this is the only place in the entire universe where Scientology exists. So if Hubbard, you know, wanted it, but, but, it, but it's within the, the, the dogma and the, and the, the uh, writings of Hubbard that Scientologists are expected to go clear and clear this planet and then go on to other planets and take care of them. So there's sort of, that's kind of the mythology and idea about reincarnation and moving on and clearing the rest of the universe within the world of Scientology. It's all pretty vague, but that's kind of what's there. In 1986, when Hubbard died and they did the event where Miscavige and, and others spoke um, at the Palladium or whatever theater that was where they were doing that, um, Miscavige sort of also implied or inferred or said that Hubbard had gone off to do further OT research. And I don't know, you know, he's, he's just pulling that out of his ass, I think. But, um, uh, but that was also another official church statement about L. Ron Hubbard and what he was doing. So Miscavige did not say he went off to, you know, to get another body and he's going to come back here to Earth. He didn't, he didn't say that. He, he definitely put out the message that Hubbard was going off to do uh, you know, OT research that required not having a body, you know, blah, 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 blah. So that's sort of the, been the official church lines about what Hubbard's doing. So if somebody thought that Hubbard, within the world of Scientology, if somebody thought Hubbard was coming back, they'd actually be in the minority uh, because they wouldn't have any basis to think that, that he was coming back straight away. Um, and you know, all the Scientologists, if they do talk about this, and they, and they do from time to time, they uh, probably think that there's some instructions or something that he left uh, as to, you know, what to do if he does come back. But I've never met or seen or heard anyone come out from international management or from the highest levels of the church and 
and say that they've seen those instructions or heard about those instructions or that there are such instructions. It's all just sort of assumed, you know. And that's kind of the whole of the lore of that that I'm aware of that I can tell you about in answering this question. Jeff Smith. You always hear stories that when people blow, someone from Scientology always tries to track them down. So if I were a Scientologist and I wanted to quit the Sea Org immediately, would they eventually let me leave if I announce it, or will they hold me against my will? If they do let people leave, then why chase after them when they blow? If I worked at Int Base, would it be different from other bases if I were to decide I was done? Okay, well, it has to do with control. Uh, Scientology wants to control its membership. Whether you're in or out of the Sea Org, they still want their, you know, claws in, in you. And so, uh, if you blow, if you're a Sea Org member and you just take off, you're considered a security threat because they don't know where you're going. They don't know who you're going to talk to. They don't know what your plans are. And that freaks them out because they also don't know what you know. And they don't know what you're going to say. And Scientology is all about controlling the narrative. They don't want any stories published about them in the news. But if they can't, uh, if a story is going to be published and there's nothing they can do about it, then they're going to do everything they can to control the narrative. So that means controlling their members and, and keeping them under a tight rein. This is all just destructive cult 101, really. This isn't any different for any destructive cult. With Scientology specifically, they will try to, if, if, if I was in the Sea Org and I just up and said one day, I want to leave, which is actually exactly what I did, then they go, okay, well, you can leave, but you have to follow our procedures to do it. And they're going to run you through a whole gauntlet of things, mostly sec checking. They're going to put you on the meter and they're going to want to ask you a bunch of questions. And they're going to expect honest answers to those questions. And they're going to, um, you know, which you may or may not give, but you're going to be on the e-meter. So they're going to expect that if the meter is saying that you're all good, meaning the needle is floating and, you know, as I've mentioned before when I talked about sec checking on the show, then you're telling the truth and all is good. And that they want to take a crack at you before they let you go. And that's the whole control mechanism. They think that you believe in the e-meter. They certainly believe in the e-meter. And so they expect that you're going to, you know, toe the line on that. If you just take off, well, you're going to be declared a suppressive person and you're going to be persona non grata. You're going to lose any family or friends or anything that you might have who are in Scientology. And that's another, you know, uh, hammer that they have over your head to, to keep you in line and control you. Um, as far as how they'll go about stopping you, it used to be a lot rougher. I mean, you know, they would, um, and, and I, I say that because of the stories about, about people, but it depends 100% on your location and it depends 100% on who you are. You know, if you're a high up mucky muck and you know all kinds of things or you've worked personally with David Miscavige or something, they're going to be all kinds of interested in holding on to you. If you're some lower level, you know, Sea Org member who just joined yesterday, then you're going to be a lower priority person for them to, you know, call out the dogs of war if you blow. So it's relative. It's not an absolute thing, right? It's not just black and white. But um, people at the international base, for example, are kept behind, you know, gates with razor sharp barbed wire on top of them in a security office. And they're going to, they do a lot of work to keep uh, control and keep tabs on their members. So they're going to want you to jump through their hoops. And um, 
there have been people who have wanted to leave who have been physically stopped and and like you know people's bodies get in their way and stop them from going through doors or or leaving um, because of that control factor and they feel perfectly justified in doing that um, so it really depends on who you are and how badly they want to hold on to you, right? But generally speaking, they're going to want to hold on to you. I mean, you're run-of-the-mill average Sea Org member who's been around for a while. They're going to want to hold on to that guy. And if he takes off in the middle of the night or something, then they're going to do the blow drill, which means the security force is going to get in their cars, drive around, tr try to track your credit cards or uh, travel you know, arrangements somehow, and they have means and methods of doing that. Um, you know, the night that I blew, when I was in the Sea Org and I took off, uh, you know, the next morning th through my wife, they had accessed the bank account. They knew that I had gone to downtown LA and withdrawn some money from an ATM. And that what they didn't know is that I had then walked all the way over to Pasadena because uh, I went from Hollywood to downtown LA and then I went in the up totally opposite direction because I was, that night I was kind of out of my mind and pretty paranoid. So, um, so they're, but they're going to, but my point was they knew that I had taken money out of an ATM at a specific location uh, because they got access to my bank account through my wife. They were also trying to track, um, you know, they, like I said, travel, that, so they'll check airports, they'll check bus stations. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. And, uh, and they're going to try to bring you back because of that control factor, right? They just want you under control. So anything that accomplishes that control is pretty much, you know, they're going to do. And uh, no matter what it takes and no matter how much, much force they have to use. And they've, ex they've used a, a tremendous amount of force in the past on Sea Org members to keep them and hold them in place. I think they're a lot more cognizant, I will say this, I think these days they're a lot more cognizant of the law and of their vulnerability because of the internet. So, uh, you know, if somebody was determined to just leave, well, they'd just leave. I mean, they'd just go out the door. But, you know, I'm talking about maybe in LA at Big Blue, right, where there aren't razor barbed wire fences. You know, you can just you can just sneak out. There's there's a couple doors in that place where you go out, and within ten seconds you're out of sight. And if you make it and you get going, you're gone, right? At the international base in San Jacinto, not that case at all. You got to get over that fence or through that fence, and then you've got to get down the road. And that road is if you watched Going Clear or if you watched. Uh, my Scientology movie, you saw that, you know, it's not, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So not totally nowhere, but enough nowhere that you got a bit of a challenge before you're going to be in the clear. So, you know, like I said, I guess it's kind of individual by person, but, um, but those are the general broad sort of strokes to it. And I hope that, hope that answers the question. Stephen Willis. Jesse Prince's claim that once David Miscavige and Pat Broker had become Hubbard's gatekeepers in his final years, they would occasionally skim money out of the suitcases of cash that LRH would have delivered to him in hiding. Once in a while, they'd visit Las Vegas and stay in luxury suites, or they'd buy expensive clothing or jewelry, including a notorious rumor of a diamond-encrusted cigarette lighter. My question is how credible you think the story is. As much as Jesse Prince is awesome, do you think it is realistic that the pair were actually plundering Hubbard's suitcases, or did they have enough power within Scientology that they could essentially get church funds for any mission they pleased, and as long as Hubbard's suitcases were full, he didn't have to know about it? 
Well, there's a lot more to Jesse Prince's story than, um, than just a little bit that was in your question. So I think I would say that I definitely believe Jesse Prince's uh, you know, rendition of the events because he wasn't just talking about this as though he was there sort of observing this from the side. Jesse Prince actually had David Miscavige on the meter doing sec checking on him at L. Ron Hubbard's orders because it was thought that, according to Jesse, that L. Ron Hubbard had suspicions about David Miscavige and it was thought that Miscavige might have been skimming from the till and might have been up to some no good because of some of his behavior. It was a bit weird and odd and Hubbard was like, what's up with this? Um, and of course, David Miscavige was working in collusion with uh, Pat Broker. Now, what what I understand happened, and and I'm I, I don't pretend to have all the details. I wasn't there, but what what I understand from Jesse Prince is that Prince was uh, was sec checking Miscavige, writing reports, got, getting the goods on how he and Pat Broker had been spending money. Um, and they were spending that money because they didn't have full, easy access to just take money for missions or projects or something whenever they, they wanted. I think it was a little more difficult than that. Uh, the, the Scientology purse strings are controlled pretty tightly. And Miscavige, when Hubbard was still around, was not in the same dictatorial authoritarian position that he is in now as the leader of the church. He could walk into any org now that he wanted to and say, you know, I'll empty your reserves and give it to me now, and, and people would do it. Back then, it wasn't really, he wasn't really in that position. Outside of international management, nobody knew who the hell he was, for example. So, um, you know, all of his fame and fortune and glory came after Hubbard died. So during this time, Scavage was not a lower level employee. He was at the international base, but he wasn't you know, king of the world, so to speak. He hadn't yet taken over RTC, that sort of thing. So, uh, so he's, you know, he and Pat Broker are kind of going off on these spending sprees, gambling sprees in Vegas, and he's coughing all of this to Jesse Prince because he knows this, that the jig is up. He's caught, he's busted, right? He's, he knows it's coming. And uh, Jesse Prince had all the goods on him and had written reports on this, and they were supposed to go up to Hubbard. But Pat Broker apparently stopped them because Hubbard never saw them, and then Hubbard died. So, you know, the goods weren't, weren't really gotten to the person who needed to issue the orders to, to remove Miscavige and take him down. So, Miscavige and uh, Broker, you know, had their little struggle after Hubbard died, and Miscavige got rid of Broker and took over, and then he took over RTC, which is where Jesse Prince was, posted and he ousted him right and that's a whole story uh which i'll you know i think jesse prince will be telling in his own you know book so uh that's all that i you know would know about uh, on the on an immediate basis but but knowing all of that i absolutely believe that that's what what he was up to whether he bought a jewel encrusted lighter or not i i don't know i don't care whether um you know he, he had he had had a, um, a couple financial problems Miscavige did, and, and uh, that was one of them. I think there was another one, and I can't remember if it was before or after Hubbard died, where, um, where Miscavige did an investment of some kind, an oil or stock or gold investment or something that totally tanked, lost all kinds of money from the, for the church, and that, that didn't go so well for him either. But anyway, yeah, that's my, that's my take on all that. Isle of Moronia. 
I have a personal question about you that speaks to the mind control thought processes of cult members. I realize this issue has come up again and again, but never-ends like me still have difficulty truly understanding. When you left Scientology, did you try to talk to your then-fiancé about it? If so, did she straight up turn away and refuse to listen? It seems that with such a close relationship, each person would at least give serious attention to such an important matter. Did your immense distress and ultimate conviction have any impact on her? If anyone could get through to another person, it would probably be someone in a spousal-type relationship. Thanks for all you've done and continue to do to alert the world about destructive cults and critical thinking. All right, well, let me tell you the specifics of this story so it's clear how this all went down. In 2013, I had this relationship with a woman out in Minnesota um, whose name I've not given out and I'm, not, I'm probably never going to because it's, you know, not really uh, anybody's business. Um, she and I were very, very close. I had actually gone out to Minnesota to be with her. She was a staff member at the, at the Twin Cities Church. And uh, so when I first went out there, nobody knew that we'd, you know, been together and, and were together. And, uh, and we were kind of keeping it on the down low. The church was giving me grief because I had just left the Sea Org and they were mad at me and they didn't want me going into the church. They didn't want me connected up with Scientologists in, in the Minnesota area. They thought I was a bad example and giving the Sea Org bad repute. And so I was persona non grata, which I didn't appreciate, neither did she. There's no policy anywhere in the church that we were aware of at the time that calls for treating me that way because I was still in good standing. I hadn't been declared a suppressive person. I had done all the right things, cross, you know, signed all the right papers. I thought I was in, in good, and yet here I was you know, being treated like a second-class citizen for just being me and having gone to live in Minnesota. So that was very difficult and that was creating stress and strain and that is actually one of the things that, that kind of drove me more to the internet was like what is going on with this organization that it's doing this to me? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, I went down the rabbit hole of the internet, right, and I found out all about Scientology but I was in a, in a bad position with her because she and her whole family were heavily involved in Scientology there in Twin Cities. So her family were, were the second or third or, or maybe first highest donor to the Twin Cities church. Uh, I mean, they were, they were absolutely full-on drinking the Kool-Aid, right? So I had to be careful. I was learning all this you know, very alarming information on the internet, and I was myself going through tremendous mental problems and, and like, what? You know, and I was emotionally, I was a wreck. And, uh, and it was not a good time for me, but I was having to keep it all held down because I knew that she didn't know everything I knew, but she had a whole family who she was very close with. And if I just said, well, look at all of this. Well, she didn't want to look at any of that. She didn't want to know what was going on with Scientology. She was still very sold on the whole thing. And very, she'd grown up with it her whole life, just like I had. She had a uh, very vested interest in not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to you know, learn about all the bad things of Scientology. It really upset her when, there were, when I did drop some clues and some hints about some things, because I thought, okay, I'm going to have to go real slow here. I'm going to have to dish out little bits at a time, and I'm going to have to kind of get her 
very gradually on my side here. And that was sort of what my plan was. Unfortunately, at the same time, I was such a mess that I needed some outlet. And so I went on the internet and anonymously was posting on ex-Scientology message board. And I was, ma I was making some comments here and there on, on Mike Rinder's blog and, and various places, Tony's blog, because I needed some kind of outlet to, to vent all of the anger and betrayal and frustration that I was feeling. Um, so I was kind of caught between these two things. I knew Scientology wasn't, you know, the, the bomb, bomb diggity anymore. It wasn't the bomb.com. But I, and I knew I didn't want to do Scientology anymore. And yet I'm hooked up with a Scientology staff member and a whole family who are all hardcore. So my plan to gradually you know, kind of help her along to kind of come out of this situation was foiled by the Office of Special Affairs because they, I, I said too much online. I gave away too much about myself and they figured out who I was and they knew I was posting online. I didn't find out about this till later. Um, so she had to go to FLAG down in Clearwater to do training to do uh, for the Golden Age of Tech Phase 2. She had to go down there for a couple months, and while she was down there, they knew that she knew me, that we were friends, and they told her, hey, you really can't be connected with this Chris Shelton guy because he's posting on the internet. And she was like, he's doing what? You know, because she didn't know that. I was anonymously, secretly doing it, right? Um, and I did not realize at that time, you know, in all that turmoil and mental gymnastics and everything that was going on with me, I didn't realize just how crazy OSA was about monitoring the internet. I had to learn that the hard way. Um, so I found out that they knew about me from her. And I was like, oh shit, I'm busted. So I had to admit to her that I had been doing that. She made me promise to stop, which I did. Um, and then I reached out to the church and I said, you know, look, we should talk couple people flew out from Los Angeles to talk to me, a couple OSA people, and they were going to handle me, right? So I knew, again, that I was out, but I wanted to remain in good standing with the church in order to keep this relationship going. And I had kind of blown it by secretly doing stuff that I got busted for and you know, my long plan now was going to be even longer because now I was in all this trouble with the church for them having busted me. But I tried to cooperate. I said, okay, I won't post anymore on the internet. I'll be a good chicken. I will do exactly what you tell me to do. And I started doing the steps that they wanted me to do. This was November. This was October, November of 2013. She was down in Flag in Clearwater, so we weren't connected and they took her phone away from her after they found out that she and I had been having a relationship because then that all came out, right? So, uh, so she was in trouble, I was in trouble, and I did not talk to her for months because they kept her down in Clearwater and through December. And in December is when I got a letter from her, from, mailed from Clearwater saying, we're over, we're done. I don't want to see you anymore. We're not a couple anymore. You know, you lied to me, blah, blah, blah. And I was devastated because here I was trying to be in good standing, trying to cooperate with the church. Even after I'd gotten busted, I was like, okay, 
you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a good boy. And they still enforced the disconnection. I was not a declared suppressive person at this point. I was in trouble, but I was not, they hadn't done anything publicly to tell other Scientologists that I was persona non grata, that I shouldn't be talked to, there was no issue about me, you know, like they issue those those goldenrod pieces of paper that say suppressive person declare Chris Shelton. Well, none of that had happened. And so, so I was cooperating, but they disconnected me anyway. And that was the point where they lost me forever. Um, obviously, you know, that, that whole year had been pretty bad, but losing her was the worst. And um, that, that rocked me uh, really hard. Uh, so immediately, right, in my, you know, devastated, uh, very, very angry position, I uh, emailed the OSA guys who had come out to handle me, and I told them to, you know, take the steps that they wanted me to do and basically shove them up their ass. Uh, and, and I was much more polite, but but that's what I basically said. And I said, I'm not, I'm not doing your steps anymore and, and, and you guys can, can bugger off. Uh, a week later, I got a phone call from the, one of the guys who'd come out to visit me. And he said, you're a declared dispressed person. And I said, I'm not surprised at all. And, uh, and that was that, right? And I hung up the phone and, and that was that. I tried, she did come back from FLAG. And I tried three times to see her in person, uh, to try to explain, to try to communicate, to try to like have some kind of resolution, to get closure, something, uh, because we had not talked that entire time. She turned her back and walked away from me each time. She would not say a word to me, would not acknowledge my presence. Um, I, at, during the, the second time that I saw her, I apologized um, profusely, you know, let her know that, that I was, that I was uh, very, very upset with how things had gone, that I understood what was happening, but I, you know, I, I just felt really bad about it and I wanted to apologize. She sort of nodded that time and that was it, right? Um, each time there were other people around, it was a, it was a you know, awkward situation and also I was, you know, not wanting to get myself in trouble in terms of, you know, stalking or something weird or anything like that. I didn't want to be that guy, right? Uh, so I, you know, I gave up. I was like, okay, well, it's very, very obvious. She does not want to talk to me. And so I'm done. And that was that. And then I had to deal with that, with that loss, you know, and, and that situation. And, uh, and it sucked, you know, it really, really sucked. Um, and I had a number of things that I had to sort of, uh, you know, go through to kind of get over that whole thing. And obviously by now I have done so and I've, uh, you know, and I've got love in my life again and all is well. But in terms of my ability to talk to her, deal with her, that was exactly everything I just said, that's what happened. And uh, I don't know that I've ever told that whole story uh, on video before, but now that's what it is. Uh, I think I talked about it in my book a bit, but um, um, but maybe not in that much detail, but that's that's the story. And so my plan was foiled. Um, you know, the church would, of course, you know, lay the blame on me. Well, you shouldn't have been on the internet and you were a bad person and you're suppressive. And obviously Scientology never worked on you in the first place is what they would say. And that's what they convinced her of. 
to convince her that, you know, that she should not have any discussion or any conversation with me of any kind. And had she done so, like, I get it. Had she done so, had she agreed to talk to me, she was under threat of losing her entire family. So, you know, they weren't screwing around with her. And, uh, and when she got in trouble for all that, she learned her lesson that she is not to rock the boat or not to, uh, you know, buck the system. And, that's, and, the, and I'm sure, very, very sure that they made it clear to her that, you know, she would lose her family and her friends and everybody who mattered to her if she didn't get me out of her life. So, you know, when, you, when you're faced with a choice like that, obviously the boyfriend's going to go, you know. And that's, that's the decision that she made. So that's what happened. What, did, did you see that? I th oh, it's flash answers time. Mark Polis, do you have an idea on the size or scope of free zone groups? Uh, you know, in general, I think the estimate is, you know, a few hundred people around the world internationally, maybe you know, two, three hundred people, I think, max, are practicing Scientology independently of the church, uh, who would call themselves independent Scientologists. But that's a that's a total guesstimate based on uh, it's an educated guesstimate. But that's that's a guesstimate because I don't think they have much of a census. Patty A, you said in a previous video that Scientologists are crazy about Star Wars. Hypothetically, if an outspoken critic of the church was cast in a Star Wars movie. Would they not be able to watch it then, or do they separate the character from the person? No, nah, they kind of, you know, Star Wars fans are Star Wars fans. They're probably going to see it anyway, but they would definitely be resentful about uh, an SP being cast in a Star Wars film. They would be very, very upset about that, but they'd probably go see it anyway. Dangerously Talented. You mentioned how the orgs have so few staff, but when I go past the Melbourne, Australia headquarters, the car park is perpetually full. What is going on there? I don't know. I don't live in Australia, <laughs> but, but I'll tell you this. Um, when I went out to LA, um, uh, I think it was about a year ago to, to, to speak at a conference and I went over to the big blue complex and walked around the block over there. I too was surprised by the fact that the LA church parking lot was quite full. Then I found out that they were renting out parking spaces or giving parking spaces away to the hospitals around the big blue complex and that most of, of those parking spaces were occupied by pe uh, people who were working at the hospitals or people who were visiting the hospitals. And it gave the apparency that LA Org was full of all these people, which was total, a total lie. So would Melbourne do something like that? Of course they would. Are they doing that? I can't really say, but that's what I, um, but that's something I can tell you. Leo Taxel, did you ever meet any Masons or Shriners at the Shrine Auditorium? Did they have an opinion on Scientology? No, I never interacted with any Shriners when I was there. I saw a couple, um, but they weren't there for our events uh, because Scientology events are for Scientologists, not for Shriners. So um, no, I never interacted with any of them. Okay, that's our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, leave it in the comment section below. I want to see what you think about my show. I would also like to know what else you guys would like to be seeing coming from me on this channel, in my podcast, in my videos. I will be starting the um, series on Scientology tech 
and breaking all that stuff down before too long here, including that metering video. That will be part of that series. And um, oh, But there's some other content being put together first, which is, uh, which is why I haven't started on that series yet. Um, but that is all coming together. But I very much like your guys' uh, feedback on, on my, my work here. So again, thanks a lot for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.